4: Please, FM, Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside And
0: 1050 AM Palm Springs.
3: You are back in the house of mystery, and of course I'm Al Warren. We've got the karate kid, yeah. Mr. <laughs> David Martini drinking in the in this dress in the in the east. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I'm <laughs> tell you. drinking a martini in a dress. Well, you know, somebody's yeah. got to do that. Yeah. You're known for that. You're like our yes. Gertrude or whatever. Yeah. Baby Patch has had that, you know, sidekick. Um, I'm, I'm the mascot. Yeah. Well, somebody's, somebody, we're we all we all have a purpose and we serve it. That's right. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, just, sorry, it's just too easy.
4: That's just too easy. You know? And and so, and I thought, and I, was so, the, I, thought no. I was a weirdo vacuuming butt naked in high heels over here smoking a cigar. But no, but no. it gets worse. I gets <laughs> worse.
3: <laughs> um and Mr. Michael Hawley, now um you're back in Buffalo and um any any truck rallies or anything going on there?
2: Uh not yet, uh but uh I am actually uh my wife is in Florida for a week, so it's just me and the pups. And then, um, and also my six kids, but that's another story. We
3: still don't know which six are
4: yours.
2: (laughs) Well, I stopped at four, so I had no idea what happened. So
4: they look like the Uh, mailman. Yeah, I was just going to say, can I buy stamps from your kid?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. And of course, now the other voice in there is a, a new guest for the show, and he's got a new book out. And of course, we are promoting it. And I've sort of been, um, In the background for this, helping him out, because I think it's a good book, and he's a good man. So, Mr. Edward Cleves, thank you for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me,
4: guys. I I really appreciate it. Thank you. We'll We'll see what you say at the end of this show. You
3: son of a (laughs) (laughs) bitch.
4: Yeah, Yeah, it gets
3: that way. And this is just so uh, people know that uh, uh, we get a lot of um, weird complaints on social social media, and a lot of people talk about – the internet, like it's an evil thing, but uh, it can be used for good. And and you know, I've created a whole group around this. In fact, uh, I think every host I've had, I think I've lounged through the internet. I think we can we find a lot of you know positive things. And and so Ed's one of those things. Um, um, good book, and it's been in the works for quite a while. And uh, and uh, he is the TikTok champion of the world. He's got like. 40,000 plus followers so ed yes what what got you into um actually deciding to write this book and not only write it but want to publish it so that the world can read it
4: uh well it, to be honest with you alan it was a, it was a therapy project you know i was in therapy for a while after i lost my partner and i just sort of it was working for me a little bit and uh so i started writing things down and writing and writing and and um It just sort of turned into this thing. I had no plans down the road. There was no back burner issue of, you know, I'm going to write a book one day about my life. That really wasn't it. just I just kept going, and it all came sort of pouring out in a torrent. And in four months, it was done. In under four months, I was satisfied for the most part with what it was. And, um, you know, I had no real idea of sharing it with the world, per se. And then I I shared it with a few close people in my life. and, And they said, "Geez, you know, you've kind of been through it. Maybe somebody could benefit from it. And that sort of planted the seed for me you know and then talking with more people and and authors that are friends around here and so forth they said yeah give it a shot you might be able to help somebody that's struggling with homelessness or addiction or child abuse issues especially you know someone that doesn't have a voice or someone that you know doesn't talk to people you know one of my colleagues at work bought it and uh came up to me, he read it in a heartbeat, and he came up to me and just squeezed the hell out of me. And I'm not close with this guy at all, but he hugged me and wouldn't let me go. And apparently, he had some similar situations. So that's already a win, as far as I'm concerned. So, um, yeah, it was just one of those things that I got to spit out in a torrent, and and here it is. So, yeah. I think that would be tough, walking around with someone holding on to you. Yeah. How am I going to wait tables (laughs) with this guy? (laughs) Clinging on to me. (laughs) I didn't know it was that kind of restaurant. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. Um, yeah, we're real friendly around here, but anyway, so yeah, that was the, uh, that was the reasoning behind it. It's just, you know, my, my, my shrink said, look, why don't you just spit it all out on paper and see what happens? And I couldn't stop. So that was it. Yeah. It's a good thing. You know, I got a lot out.
3: So at the, at the end of the day, you, you got this out, but how did you decide what part you were going to share with people and what part you were going to keep secret? Cause there's some, you know, pretty dark areas here, right? And, uh, yeah.
4: Um, well, I left a lot out, to be honest with you. There's a ton of. How
0: dare you! Shit. It's
4: even worse that I left out. That I, that's just mine, you know. So I'm not going to share that with the world. There's some very people that have, like my sister, and some people that are very close to me that know the 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 real violence that happened, you know. And I'm just I'm keeping that to myself. So, um, in terms of deciding what to share and what not, the first two words I wrote were just. Uh, or the, the first few words was just keep it real, you know, keep it raw, that sort of thing. And and this is just a matter of fact telling of my story. This is just my life. You know, it's, it's not some play for sympathy. It's not anything. It's just matter of fact that this is how it was. And this, as a result, this is how I am. And that's it, pretty much. So leaving things in and leaving them out. If it didn't fit to the story, if it didn't feel right, you know, and then I just, I, uh, it just, it didn't stay in for the most part you know i went on a political diatribe a rant if you will for about 25 pages because it was on the background and uh it didn't fit in the book at all didn't belong there it had nothing to do with the story so that got booted but for the most part you know everything i wanted to say is in there so
2: but it was therapeutic that you wrote that it was yeah i i
4: I learned to let a lot of stuff go you know with the exception of the anger that I, i have still to this day the rage i have over over the the abuse and not being able to stop it as a child. So um, I'm going to keep that. That's my motivate. That's my nuclear battery. You know, that's not going anywhere. That motivates me to do all kinds of shit. Oh, my. Keeps my head on a swivel. Let's get kind of the basic
3: premise down here. So first of all, you are now, what, 52, right? Yes. Okay. And so when you grew up, um, you were growing up in the area of Roxbury,
4: Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Okay.
3: So tell us about that neighborhood at that time
4: it was rough it was this was before crack you know so there's there, there was gunplay but it wasn't you know like when when, when crack hit everywhere people just killing each other left and right for territory drug territory but i mean there was gunplay we had pimps and you know there was burned out buildings up the street that we would play in you know a lot of triple deckers that would just have fires and you know they wouldn't board them up so as a kid we would just go in there and it was dangerous it was deadly we would just climbed through burnt out structures for entertainment and fun um but yeah it was a rundown it was a ghetto for sure wasn't the projects. The projects were just up a few blocks. Those were really, really bad. I didn't go in there.
3: That's where
4: Dave lived. At all, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: (laughs) The Alecton projects.
4: They were called, really. Yeah. (sighs) They were called the uh, uh, Bromley Heath and Orchard Park projects were were just tough. You know, my neighborhood was was this little two-block radius, if you're three-block. radius, It was was okay, but it was still, you know, we had pimps running around looking for girls, and it was dangerous at times. A lot of break-ins, you know, not so much gunplay at that time.
3: Hmm. so now um what can you tell us about your parents um as in what brought them to that that part of the the country to live in and what what they did for a living or what they sort of kind of give us a little bit of background on the family part well, now
4: well here's the deal and, and you know i take part responsibility for not doing much research but you know them in a lot of ways so i just I, I haven't but i don't know much about them i don't know anything about my grandparents on either side i just know my first memories of them as being Blackout alcoholics and extremely violent especially my father they weren't living together when i was born my memories of, of my mother at 44 west Walnut park with her live-in boyfriend amos this delicious white trash hillbilly piece of
3: how shit how dare you you know
4: pardon. oh i hated him i hated him um so you know in terms of my earliest memories were of that where it was just you know just survival bam right out of the gate just trying to avoid pitfalls and you know keeping my head on a swivel. We all had to, that sort of thing. So so their history is, is is strange to me. I was told my mother was a nurse. I have no idea. I only have a few, few years of memories with her. Um, I saw some pictures of her uh, that my sister Patty had, the oldest, uh, and she didn't look like the, you know, lunatic alcoholic that, that you know, she portrayed to me. You know, I hate to say that, but that was part of the truth. As far as my father goes, I don't really have any history at all. He, uh, I understand he was in the military for a while, but I don't know. He was a jack of all trades. Someone told me he was a great digger. Go figure. You know, he looked like Hannibal Lecter in that scene in, in the Silence of the Lambs when Jody <laughs> Foster first meets him. You know what I mean? Right. He's walking down to his cell and he turns around. He's got the jumpsuit on and his hair slicked back. I jumped out of my chair. <laughs> Part of my language. Part of my language. That's what he looked like, man. He looked like Hannibal Lecter, and it was just terrifying. I saw that movie. And I'm like, you son of a bitch! Really, he's still around. So, yeah. So I don't really have much history in terms of what he did. I know my mother and her living boyfriend. He fancied himself uh, a, a carpet installer of some sort. He never worked. He always had a can of Schlitz in his hand. Had a pigeon chest and a small bare belly and just bad teeth. And just I couldn't even look at him. I couldn't look at them. But they both ended up getting a job at a liquor store, at a package store up the street in Eggleston Square. Um, perfect job for two blackout alcoholics, you know, work, working in a fucking liquor store. <laughs> so there you go. So there was always... Slits, Yeah, too. right? Yeah, slits, tall boys. Ugh, can't even look at them. Uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, unfortunately, you know, there's a lot of unanswered questions, you know, that, that... And I put that in the book as well. I said, you know, there's just... There's so many unanswered questions. You know, people ask me about my parents in life and my cousins and this and that. And I don't have an answer. You know, my heritage, my heritage, I have no idea. I mean, I could, I could go find it. It's not that difficult. I just choose not to. Are you
3: avoiding it or are you just not interested? Like what's, what's your feeling? Like why? Uh,
4: A little bit of both. The older I get, the less I care, to be honest with you. You know, that, that underlying vein of, of anger is still there. It's always there, you know, um, uh, yeah, I mean, and part of me is is afraid that I'm going to go back throughout generations and find out that they're just just all white trash. It's just, and I don't want that, you know. So I'm blocking that and just sort of giving it the Heisman, you know, and 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 uh and moving on, you know, trying not to perpetuate ever. I've got three brothers that I can't speak with or I don't speak with because they fell into that trap of unfortunately of crime and drugs and you know they, all that South Boston stuff and Roxbury stuff that you see about on TV. Um, and I went the other direction completely. So a lot of me just doesn't want to look back to it, yeah. You know?
3: What did you do when you were younger to uh, deal with the dysfunction in your family? Did you have any, anything that you uh...
4: – when, uh, when In Roxbury, because we moved around a lot. Once, once my mother died uh, from the house burned down, once she died, um, my sister Patty, the oldest, took me in, and then we moved around quite a bit. So before that, the pitfalls inside – like, for example, you know, I got chased home from school a lot, that sort of thing, and, you know, just being the, the white kids in the neighborhood, you know. Like, the white neighborhood was my house that was it. you know. So there was always harassment. It wasn't terribly violent, but getting chased to and from school was a regular thing. So, like, the fastest person in an all-black and Puerto Rican neighborhood was my sister, Michelle. She was lightning because they were always chasing her home trying to beat her up. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> so I could run like the wind, you know what I mean? I could really run. So a lot of it, I had a couple of good friends, you know, Terry White. His middle. I called him ain't because he wasn't white. You know, Terry ain't white. He was kind of my best buddy uh, he was my best friend he taught me how to ride a bike and he sort of protected me from the other neighborhood kids from time to time so we just played out in front of, we lived near each other so we would play football uh, out in front of the house until the lights until the street lights came on and it was time to, mm-hmm. it was time to go in so avoiding the pitfalls of the house it was roll of the dice every time because you never knew what was going to happen you know there was downtime when they were passed out for sure you know but the unpredictability uh, was you, you can't really you, know, you never know what's coming from one moment to the next
3: so. you know one of one of the things i um really um love about you and the book is your um sense of humor with all of this because i relate to it i do the same thing i make fun of everything i have since i was a kid because i i didn't have quite as drastic a situation as you but you know really bad alcoholic father the same sort of setup no mother mm-hmm. so um I've always sort of been the joking guy, but I noticed that with you. Is, is 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 that something that you've had since the beginning?
4: Yeah, yeah. All of my siblings have that. We're a really funny bunch. Really funny. Crack jokes on each other when we were together, which was very rare. Um, yeah, almost a defense mechanism, but I still do it to this day. You know, I love cracking jokes as a way to assuage all the bullshit that happened, and and uh, I just I like laughing. You know, it's the complete opposite of what I had to deal with for so long i love cracking jokes and being inappropriate and sarcastic and you know just getting a rise out of people and mostly just laughing over at the absurdity of it all and again with time you know i I tend to care less and less about a lot of things to be honest with you so i have a big giant attitude towards things so you know it's going to be what it's going to be you know opinions opinions on me don't matter anymore so so yeah if i can crack a joke i will absolutely why not you know so perhaps it's a defense mechanism or as i've always been that way
3: always. So what do you, when when you put this out and, and now that you've finished it, um, if you look back at it, was there, is there anything that you'd want to do differently?
4: Uh, probably not end it as abruptly as I did. I just, I mean, this, I have a staccato writing style that coupled with the fact that I, that's why there's 32 chapters and a lot of them are so short. is because I bounced around so much, you know, there was always, um, for me, when my sister took me in after the house burned down, um, We moved like every six months, if not less, for some reason. She had a violent husband who sort of, you know, the. We went to. I went from Roxbury, Mass, to living with her in Reedville, Massachusetts, which is Hyde Park, uh, which is an all-white middle-class neighborhood, and it freaked me out. I'm looking around, there's kids riding bikes, there's green lawns. I'm like, where the? This is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and there's little kids riding their bikes, and my first instinct, I was like, you better be careful, someone's going to snatch your bike from you, and I realized that's not going to happen in this neighborhood, you know. It was crazy, but I couldn't trust myself enough to relax and exhale. You know, I wasn't trained in that part. I was trained in the opposite, to just keep your head on the swivel. But, you know, the violence was the same. She she married some creep who was was physically abusive, that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, there was always, we we moved so much. In fact, the time we stopped moving was when I went out on my own. I can't. I can't go to another place. I can't move every six months. Now, she did the best she could, and I still love her. She's my hero, you know. My sister Patty's my champion in many, many ways. She taught me how to fight. Uh, so, you know, yeah, about 15 or 16, I struck out on my own, and that was it.
3: I noticed quite a bit that you you mentioned how you recognize the, uh, you know, getting into the same cycle um, as your parents did and getting into that uh, – repeat of of violence and substance abuse and things like that Um, but a lot of people don't don't catch that about themselves or about their family and stuff like that and they continue to to live the way they were brought up what do you think it was that um, made you so aware of yourself and your own behaviors copying that of your parents
4: well, the only thing I I copied, and I, I think I don't think I had a choice in it. Was you know I'm, I'm predisposed genetically to, to alcoholism, so I'm an alcoholic. I know that. Uh, I'm not violent. I I absolutely refuse to to perpetuate that. To, to my brothers did, you know, unfortunately they 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 lived very violently. You know, they're doing a lot better now, but they lived very violently. I refuse to ever ever hurt somebody that way. If I have to, if I have to defend myself, that's a different story. The gloves are off.
2: So I have a question. Why
4: was that? Uh, because, you know, I didn't want to be like that, like them. I hated that situation, and I hated them so much. I said I would do anything to not perpetuate it, to be like you. And besides, it's the wrong thing to do. You don't have the right to, to, to put your hands on somebody, to, to, you know, make them feel afraid that they're going to be hurt. You know, I, the mental torture for me was, was – as equal as the physical pain that I, I suffered from time to time. you know That that had a very, very lasting effect. And I said, there's no way in hell. I'm a better person than that. I'm a better person than them. I'll share my experience with people verbally, but I'm never, ever going to oppress somebody, ever. I can't.
2: So one, one of my problems, and I bet Al goes through this too, is when we when we uh, research serial killers, we're looking for people that lack empathy. Oh, yeah. And then to, to see it, you can say, well, Al, he's not going to be a serial killer. Mm. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. But the but I, I'm always intrigued by the em, empathetic feelings, and so you had that even back then with a kind of a violent background.
4: That's that's Yeah, awesome. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna you know that's just not who I am. That's not how I'm. No, I couldn't be a serial killer. I mean, I couldn't kill the innocent. You know, if if I decided to go on some sort of tangent, whereby you know I made a list of American politicians and people I don't like, and, <laughs> then who knows. <laughs> You know, but no, no, that's absolutely- just say Republican Party, uh, yeah. Well, there you go. That diatribe was about Trump, by the way. I did fucking 25 pages, freedom of consciousness about Trump. He was on the background. I posed it. I'm like, ah, this can't go in the book.
2: Do you mind if I have a copy? Yeah, of that? It, was, it was beautiful.
4: I, I lost it. Um, but yeah, no, so that's it's not in my nature to do that. I mean, I think we're all capable as human beings to an extent. You know, I think it's in our, our primal DNA that, that there's always something there, but in terms of people that you know, sociopaths are true. You know, people without empathy or just a black stare, sort of thing. Yeah, I can appreciate that. You know, people like that. If I'm ever standing to someone like that, you know, uh, excuse me, standing next to someone like that, my skin crawls. But yeah, there are, there are people yeah. that are just genetically that way or you know, predisposed to taking life. Not in my DNA. I mean, the the, the closet maniac part of my uh, title is 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 alive and well. You know, it's it's just furious young kid, and it's it's you know, it's not. I don't think it's about, beyond anybody to. I don't know be violent if it came to the right circumstances and situations, I suppose. But, you know, all of that stuff I keep in, it's, yeah, because that would make me just like them, and that's never going to
3: happen. Well, you say you're dealing with with still a lot of anger. Um, you know, Do you do anything to, to channel that? To
2: channel um, yeah. That you still
4: feel? I, I bang it out at the gym on, on a daily basis, usually. Lately with work, it's, I haven't been able to, to get to it. But I'll cut down on shifts before I cut down at the gym, because it's the one thing that keeps me sort of mm-hmm. you know level and mellow and because it'll build up i have to have a release for it It will, it'll, if i don't do anything to, to let it out it will build up and therapy helps don't get me wrong but you know i can only be in therapy for so long it's been six years since my partner died i've been in therapy off and on before that forever but you know i had one therapist that i i i got to say to i got to say we have to stop i got to say that to a therapist it was awesome because that's all i do at 55 minutes we have to stop anyway he kept saying wow in the first like half an hour He's like, wow, wow. I'm looking around for his degrees on the wall. I'm like, I'm pretty sure you shouldn't be saying wow all the time. <laughs> just listening, you know. And, uh, yeah, so I don't know. I think he was – I had one therapist that I'm pretty sure was on methamphetamine. I'm pretty sure. It was, 100, it was $135 an hour U.S. I'm like, I'm paying this guy while well. we're on the top floor of this high-rise, et cetera. It's a very fancy office. And he's just filling and looking around, kept staring out the window. There's nothing out the window. I'm like, dude, what are you looking for? I don't know. It was just strange.
3: That's how he's spending your money. Yeah, I think so, man. He's waiting, for, <laughs> I think
4: he's waiting for a drone with his stuff to come flying by. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But, um, um, yeah, so, I mean, therapy does help. But for the most part, it's it's the gym. The gym, is, is it, it keeps me physically exhausted and mentally sharp. And it's a great hobby. I enjoy it. It keeps my body strong. Absolutely. I haven't seen the same therapist now uh, for the for the last since my partner died. Um, she was across the street from the condo that we owned, and so it was very convenient. When he was really sick and couldn't move, I quit my job and I didn't leave the house. So you know, I, I, w- I became his caretaker. He was a nurse, so we got we got the hookup from the hospice nurses, from all of his people. We got a hospital bed for nothing. We got all the all the stuff we needed. His medicines, a lot of morphine, a lot of painkillers. I would administer to him. We got all of it like right away without waiting for anything. So and oxygen, so super grateful for that. So the therapist was you know less than two hundred meters away. So I would just jam over there when I could, when he was in good shape. And we had some. Our neighbor would sit with him when I needed to go food shopping and things like that. But I'm a restaurant guy, so I can go food shopping in twenty minutes for several days. I'm fast. Uh, <laughs> checking out is another story altogether on the West Coast. Everybody's <laughs> so <fun>. everybody's so <laughs> slow. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I risk getting arrested every time I go to the Safeway supermarket because the, I call them civilians. They're just so slow, they can't move and they're making the, and they have time, good for them, they're doing it the right way, but I'm like, I'm gonna kill you. I clean up aisle six. <laughs> I'm gonna kill you lady. You know, just I don't know. The being in the restaurant takes so way. long. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, Please just leave. Um <laughs> sorry. But uh <laughs> I move very, very, very quickly when I need to get something done as a result of being in the restaurant game. So, so I got to gem over there and, and chat with her when it, was, when it was good. And it was a good release, you know. But she was, yeah. more, of a, she was more of a CDC, chemical dependency counselor. So her thoughts on, on loss and love and life, it was more of a, just a human-to-human conversation. Um, she, uh, she spent a lot of time. She was educated in Boston. I think she went to Northeastern. So when she throws on the Boston accent, it's wicked proper. That's great. We, we, we go back and forth from time to time. So I still see her. I spoke with her the other day, in fact. I see her, but not as, not as often. So between that and the gym, it's, you know, I get what I need. What do you hope
3: a person gets out of the book? Like, what's, what's the end game here for you? So someone reads through the book, and when they finish it, is there something you're trying to tell them?
4: Yeah, I think so. You know, I, I someone, I, like I think you asked me that question a while ago and I wasn't really sure because I hadn't thought about it. Um, you know, their, their buddy money's like, and you know, when I came out to him, he's like, Jesus, I can't believe it. you're so butch, so manly, blah, blah, blah. Cause I guess I'm not stereotypical homosexual or, or effeminate in any means, in any, any way, uh, in any way. Um, if anybody gets anything out of it, I want them to know about the child abuse and, you know, that they're, they're not alone. There's people out there that have gone through the same. Oh my, that, that don't talk about it at all. Like my buddy Walter at work. You know, he just came up, we talk and he's very, you know, he's a gay guy and he's very, he's a lot of fun to work with, but he's very, very, very quiet. He's always really quiet. Like, you know, to the point where I look at him, like, wow, that's a quiet guy. What's going on? Um, And he just clamped onto me beginning of the shift and gave me a big power hug. And I was like, are you okay? And he was was almost crying a little bit. He goes, yeah, I finished it. And he goes, I have a similar story in a lot of ways. And he said, it made me feel really, really good. So, I mean, that's already a victory right there. One person gets something out of it. So yeah, that would be it. The child abuse part, the coming out part and having no shame about it. You know, this is, for me, it was just a matter of fact thing. I was living on my own by 16, so, or less, so it didn't really matter. I didn't, I didn't care what anybody thought about my sexuality. You know, I didn't give it much thought. This is just basically how I am from nature, so I can't see how anything could be wrong with it, you know. And I learned quickly that how people think about that sort of thing, but. So if anybody gets that sort of just, you know, some strength about coming out in their life or, or just dealing with child abuse issues or just moving forward unapologetically in life, you know, everybody's got their opinions, screw them. Who are they, you know? People that offer or, sh- or chuck opinions in your face. To me, it's kind of laughable, you know, because a lot of times their opinions are, most times are uneducated, unsolicited. And, you know, where were you when I was homeless? Where were you when I was hungry? Where were you when I was in despair? My head is buried in pain. Where were you? Your opinion doesn't matter. It really does and That's how he feels. So if somebody can pick this thing up and feel a little bit better or feel a little le- a little less alone, then you know my job is done. That's fantastic. So be careful of the quiet ones. or usually the serial killers. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> <Yeah>. absolutely.
3: <laughs> Throwing that out there, you know. Oh, yeah. Be careful. Yeah. Um, yeah I, I wonder, but now when you um, when you work through all of this and that, and um, you, you talk about alcoholism and addiction. Um how how do you come to terms with that?
4: You know, I've I've gone through a bunch of rehabs, um, AA off and on, and there were times where I sincerely just wanted to stop drinking. You know, it was it was effing me up. And uh but you know, I was drinking at pain. You know, I don't really I don't require booze when I'm not in pain, you know. And uh when I was in pain over losing Brian, etc., it got up to almost a gallon of vodka a day. That's a lot. And I can still function. That's wow. how high my tolerance is. I can still function. You know, not very well after a gallon goes down. And that's usually in 18 hours because I spend the next, you know, six hours of sleep or passed out. Um, but, yeah, for me, the pain was so intense. The pain of my childhood, you know, it's 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 subcutaneous. It's always right there. It's easy for me to summon. So a lot of times when I go to the gym, I don't stretch. I don't have to do anything. I stretch out a little bit now because I'm older, but I get right after it at 100 miles an hour. I'm just as strong as I was when I was younger. I'm still moving the same weight. Around at 21 that I am, I, excuse me, at 52 that I was at 21 because of this anger, because of this pain. So as it relates to the alcohol, I mean, I used it to drink away the pain. Right now, I'm living my best life. Um, I don't really want it right now. I can. I've got money in the bank. I have all the opportunity. I have t- tomorrow off. I can go get hammered if I want to, you know. But I think the, the 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 answer I'm looking for is as time goes on. You know, my body, I think, is just getting sick of it just feeling like
0: how dare you
4: you know because i mean alcohol's a depressant so if i'm already hurting if i'm already in despair you know it's a temporary relief you know but then it, the agony is so much worse when the alcohol has gone it's so much worse hmm. so so you know less pain less booze that's how it is for me
2: so so did your partner's death did that bring back uh, memories or emotions from your youth—is that what I was going on? No, well? not
4: really. Um, this was—I mean, if you had met Brian, you would understand. He's, he was—he was a—he was a true innocent in this world. He was an absolute innocent. He was naive. He had giant. His eyes was wide open. He were wide open. He had a huge heart.
0: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
4: And I remember the moment I fell in love with him, I'm like, this, this guy is for real. He's, he's actually an innocent. And me being jaded so young and early, or just having to not be able to trust people, and, you know, and again, like I said, keep my head on a swivel, when I, I saw him as completely alien to me, I'm like, wow, this guy can't be real. He's, what's going on? And he was, and he was real. And, I, you know, I would never, ever let my guard down to somebody, ever. And it just happened with him. You know, I fell in completely and totally my mind, my soul, my body, all that I was in like Flynn. So when I lost him, it was devastating, man. It was a palpable, tangible pain that I couldn't get off of me. It was on my skin. It was in my heart. It was everywhere. Like I felt like I was walking through wet dog fur or just walking underwater all the time. Even when I was sober, it was just that bad for me. It was that painful and I couldn't bear it. So I filled my gym bag with plastic bottles of vodka and I just, I walked and walked and walked and chain smoked cigarettes and walked around in pain. That's what I did. I mean, to, to sort of Process it or or bury it as best I could. That's what I did, you know. And time has taken some of this thing out of it, but it's still there. I still have his pictures up. I'm looking at them right now, that sort of thing. He was, he wanted to be cremated. He was a nurse and he saw terrible things in his business and he said, I don't want to be buried. I want to be cremated. So he was. And his parents live in Colorado. They're still there. They're from Chicago. They're all from Chicago. He's, uh, they're elderly. They're in their 90s, mid 90s and they wanted his ashes. And I wasn't going to say no, you know, just take them, of course. You can have them. I didn't, I mean, once he was gone, that was it. The ashes aren't going to mean much to me about that. that I'm not that way. So, uh, But I may erect a headstone at the cemetery up the street here soon as part of the healing process because I really had nowhere to mourn him other than in my head. And it was just so painful that I just – I drowned it out for a couple. I climbed into a bottle for the better part of two years, and I didn't care. But I sort of snapped out of it.
2: In having that, at uh, let's say, at a cemetery, the reason why uh, – my wife doesn't want one, but the reason why I want one is because I'm narcissistic. Oh, yeah. So that's a
4: completely different issue. Well, you can have a a fabulous picture of yourself carved in, you know, like on a (laughs) surfboard or something. That's right. Somebody feeding you grapes. (laughs) (laughs) Every (laughs) every dog in the neighborhood will come by. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, I haven't given too much thought about it myself. I figure, you know, when it comes to death, it's, I mean, other than the cliche that it's inevitable. It is what it is. I'm, I'm not, after everything that's happened, I don't really fear it especially if i was in the throes of addiction my my drinking or what have you i could care less if i lived to die that was it i figured i'd get to see brian again you know so to me it didn't really matter part of me still feels that way you know but a headstone yeah i, I may do it just sort of have a place to visit i might do it for for myself i'm st- i keep going back and forth because i don't know if it's, it's something i should just let go of and just try to move on and you know and and try to be happy i don't know i keep going back and forth with with that particular idea but yeah i don't know if i have a headstone for myself but i would like something sort of interactive so if somebody you know it's a screen that they can't see so if they come to visit my grave the one person maybe my face will pop up boo son of a bitch (laughs) Scare the hell out of him you know get me out of here (laughs) stop digging he's still alive you owe me me five bucks (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Something like that, but yeah. So anyway, moving forward, I don't, I don't know. I, I keep waffling on the idea of getting a headstone for him. I may end up doing it down the road, but, but no. uh, yeah, I'm not sure.
3: So, do you have any idea? This is um, interesting. We deal with the, like, like Michael was saying, a lot of um, killers and a lot of all this sort of stuff. Do you have any idea why um, someone like you? you know i can even see it myself have have a really bad young life but you turn out not to to take the negative road like a lot of people do like you know you see so many of these shows about killers and crime people and stuff and they've they've had this bad parents and bad childhood and stuff like that and it's always sort
4: of referred to this is the reason what
3: what is it do you think that makes you different then
4: you know, I honestly do not know, I don't know. I can't I can't really say, maybe being gay, who knows? You know, because I always knew I was gay. I just didn't know what it was when I was very young. I just knew that I preferred men to women. Um, I don't know, maybe it's being an empath, you know, first rate empath, I can pick up on so much from people. Uh, I usually don't talk about that part because it was so strange to me. But yeah, it's it's a real thing as far as I'm concerned. Um, You know, I, I can't answer that to, you know, I just, I, I think a lot of it was just seeing so much violence and being unable to stop it. I know that I remember the moment my anger was born and I'm glad it, it, I'm glad it's still here to be honest with you. You know? Um, yeah, I can't say as to why I think it's just because, you know, it's the wrong thing to do. You can't hurt somebody else. Don't get me wrong. My, you know, my appetite for destruction is insatiable. And if I want to move on somebody, I'm certainly capable. I'm devious. I can, you know, I can do, I can exercise my will if I want to. Absolutely. But that's not who I am. And it will never be who I am because, you know, a, it's the wrong thing to do, and B, it would make me just like them, you know? I mean, I watched yeah. my parents go after us and after my siblings with just such malice. They didn't, they didn't give a care at all. So, and, and, I, and that branded me. I'm like, wow, okay. So there really are just people that are, and it's a huge firm belief with me that there are people out there that just suck, and they deserve no mercy in a lot of ways, you know?
3: Right. Do you ever think of uh, or wonder why or ask why your mother was that way, for instance?
4: Yeah, I asked my sister Patty, you know, I said, was she always like that? Was she always like that? Uh, because I had three older siblings that were out of the house. They made their escape all very young, 15 and 16. They all made their run for the border, if you will. Um, And she said she was that way when she was sober. She was just vindictive, and she would do mean.
0: How
3: dare you?
4: And uh, my top three siblings didn't know their, well, no, my brother Thomas does, but my two older sisters had different fathers, and they didn't know them. Because my mother wouldn't tell them who it was. So my mother told my sister, Patty, they're walking down Center Street in Jamaica Plain. She goes, where's my dad? And he goes, it could be any one of these guys. He lives right around here. And that was it. <laughs> and that was it. She was just would just be really, wow. really mean. And it, part of me, it breaks my heart. But at this point now, I mean, at her funeral, I didn't cry. Right. she was not I was in December I think of, of uh, 1979 I got back from going to the bro, uh, movies with my brother Jim we snuck in because we didn't have any money the house there were fire trucks in front of the house and a ton of people and so forth so I ran down there and they were pulling her away in an ambulance I'm assuming it was her and the house was gutted right it was just gutted it was it was gone so that's why I ended up moving in with my sister Patty after that
3: did you have any um, animosity towards your
2: siblings for getting away
4: no no oh that's what I was getting to Um at the funeral, um, some of my siblings were bawling. My brother Jimmy was crying his eyes out. And I looked at him. I'm like, what the f*** are you crying for? We're free. That's the way I saw it. You know, we're free. We're out of Shawshank. We're free from that. And he was terribly upset. I felt nothing. I didn't cry. You know, it wasn't shock. They tried to put me in kid therapy. I'm like, come on. I'm not going gonna, gonna to sit here and color for an hour. Just leave me alone. Um, yeah, I didn't feel, you know. No, I didn't feel animosity about them leaving. No, they made their escape. Good for them. My sisters got pregnant very young in their early teens. Sixteen? Sixty later teens. So they raised kids right away. They were busy, that sort of thing, and just living their lives. Um, but, yeah, it was definitely an escape for them. So I didn't know. I didn't feel animosity at all. You know, there was just, to me, it was, you know, like it says on the cover here, it says all things were subject to change at 44 West Palm Park. So when my brother Jimmy was the last to escape before the fire, he left. He was just gone one day. I think he went to live with my biological father, Hannibal Lecter. And, um, yeah, exactly. And uh, So, no, I had no animosity. I just missed them, you know. I miss them being around because you know we would be outside all the time playing. Uh, so yeah, no.
2: Well, Al, Al, can we have two hours? <laughs> <laughs> we
4: we want to know more. Yeah, I'm an open book, guys. Ask me anything you like. But so it's not a pretty story. But there's you know I I, I don't like the gift I have is from all of that is is anger and it's a again my nuclear battery. It's how I power myself through everything. You know to be faster than you, to be stronger than you, to be you know smarter do my homework, do my research, just be cover every angle um, so that I'm farther and further away from that white trash, horrible beginning, you know. So as far as the violence goes, no, I could never perpetuate on that to somebody, or that onto somebody, ever, you know. I mean, it's in my DNA, sure. I think it's, you know, all of us have that sort of primal thing. But but I do have empathy, so I don't think I could just kill somebody for the sake of killing them. I mean, I want to. I'm in the restaurant business, right, at least once a day. <laughs> Right. I want to strangle somebody. It's like, you know, my, the restaurant I work for is very expensive and and the people are very spoiled, so they come in. I, I liken them to, on a Saturday evening, I like Mr. and Mrs. White, I call them. And they're at home in the mirror practicing, you know. They're dressing up and they're like, I'll have a short day. Talking to themselves, right? And then I'd like to speak to the manager, just getting ready to come in and torture innocent waiters, you know. So, yeah, wanting to, wanting to just take somebody out <laughs> in the restaurant business is, is very common. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Well, it's it, so...
3: Where, where do you see yourself going now books done
4: um, um yeah so what's happening now right now i'm just right in the moment i mean that's another thing that happened after losing brian i mean and and, and dealing with what i deal you with know, three rehab centers that were an absolute joke um i'm literally taking it one day at a time you know I, as I, I mentioned in the book you know I, I i make no plans whatsoever but i do keep one eye open you know a little bit down the road but i don't make any plans i'm living i'm living in the moment if i have any plans whatsoever i'm working on a, a, a fictional piece of work right now just doing outlines uh for a book i have a working title called fiend it's about a killer serial killer if you will um so a lot of the writing that i did for this book the first one was uh stream of consciousness and i wrote it by hand pen and paper and then i plugged in my headphones to the laptop and i just spoke it in and it typed for me because i the creative process for me when i'm typing it doesn't feel the same as, as when i'm writing it so but i knew a lot about this subject it was my life it was easier so this work of fiction I'm, I'm, I'm working on now all my notes here tons of notes is fun it's absolute fun i get to say and and write about the things that i possibly might want to do to somebody you know but in a fictional realm in a fictional realm, it's just—it's fun, is what it is. So, so right now, that's what I'm doing for fun. It—it—it it, it, it makes me feel really good to—to to work on this project. So, um, mm-hmm. other than that, that's it. I'm hoping to um, finally enjoy the Pacific Northwest out here in terms of topography. It's so beautiful here. But I'm always working my ass off during the summer. So this summer, I'm going to take it a little bit differently. But yeah, just enjoy, enjoy the, uh, enjoy the summer here because there's nothing like it in Seattle.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to, you have to enjoy life while it's still, still around. Still um still have the opportunity, you know. Yeah. Now if uh either your parents were alive today and you would face them, what would you say to them?
4: Interesting. Uh I don't know if I could say anything. I would probably just stand there and bristle. You know, and just bristle and try not to just explode on both of them. And Amos, the step not stepfather, but my mother's living boyfriend. You know, for their for their lack of empathy, for scaring the living daylights out of innocent people, for shaking souls, for reshaping the, the clay of a kid's nature that should be innocent and fun and having a good time and playing. Regardless if you live in a poor neighborhood or what have you, you know, it doesn't have to be the way it was. You know, and, and instead of asking why, you know, why were you so malicious to your kids? Why? Because they would wake us up with a beating. My brother Johnny, poor kid, my little brother, it happened to him a lot. She'd just come in, in the middle of the night and start wailing him no reason so being awoken like that yeah i mean you know and and witnessing it all the time and you know they fought over guns all the time you know it's just yeah so if if they were they were standing in front of me i don't know to be honest with you i would have a very hard time not explode. so
2: the re re, reshaping clay that's so uh an amazing way of saying it. It's like now, then you have to want to break their clay. Yeah, yeah.
4: No, mine, mine is is mercurial. It, it stays in the form of mercury. Not mercurial. It's just it's it's liquid. It's always you know I, it never solidified and didn't have a chance to you know. And I didn't want it to. Maybe my three older brothers, or my three brothers, you know that 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 cycle of violence that they perpetuated and, and and addiction. I don't know. Maybe it solidified with them. But but yeah, no. I mean, when you when you my kids clay and by by shocking them day after day after day. I mean, I, I can remember electric shocks going through my body when they start punching each other. Or she grabs a knife or she tries to kill herself again. I'm like, when is enough enough, you know? And I thank the gods or whomever that I still have such empathy and care for people. It still breaks my heart when I see people suffer. You know, the human condition alone is, is, is heartbreaking. And so. Well, to me, it's just
2: amazing uh, the human condition where has, someone has lived through that and still has that heart that you have. That, that's just so intriguing. Yeah,
4: I, I mean, we have a lot of homeless and addicted here in Seattle, and, and it's gotten worse and worse. And a lot of these young kids are just spending most of their time knotted out or um, from heroin or just you know, they they got meth and, methamphetamine-induced psychosis from lack of sleep and the drug itself. So they're gone. It's unfortunate. But every once in a while, I'll run into that soul that's just down. And out and hurting, especially when I was drinking and walking around. I just plop down next to them and just, you know, to, because they already feel marginalized. They're trapped in addiction and people walk by them and look at them like they're a piece of, I can't do that. I'll sit down next to you. I'll chat. I'll share a bottle with you that I'm most likely carrying. This is when I was drinking and, and walking around and trying to bury all of my pain from Brian, you know, but to, to just let somebody know they exist is everything. You know, it can change a lot. Cause that person might have been planning to whack themselves that day. You never know. So it's a small act of kindness right. can go a very, very long way in someone's life. And I refuse to just, you know, if they're not dangerous, if they're not, you know, going through a psychosis or if they're not knotted out, if someone, if I can see them and, you know, I can pick up on it, then, yeah, absolutely, I'm going to give you some cash. And I heard people say, yeah, they're just going to use it for their addiction. I mean, probably, right? But probably not. What you've given them now is an option. They have a choice now that they didn't have before. So, yeah, they may spend it for their addiction. I mean, if you're coming down from alcohol, it's the hardest drug to detox from. It's also the most deadly. You're coming down from that. You're going to do anything to assuage that pain of physical addiction and mental torture. So I get that part of it. But, you know, giving them some cash or even my time, which is more important, uh, uh, gives them an option to get something to eat or to just be out of pain for a little while. So, so yeah, my, my, my tank of empathy is always full when it comes to the people who truly suffer. Maybe it's because of what happened to me. Well, it's directly resulted because of what happened to me. So I could never be, I could right. never be like they were, ever. No.
3: To be able to take that anger, to, to, to take that um, hate upon you, let's say, and turn it into something positive, even now. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a skill that not a lot of people have. Um, and that's you see this in the world a lot
4: today. It's a motivating tool. I mean, it would be an excuse, it would be a piss-poor excuse for me to say, oh, I did this because of what happened to me. No, that's never going to happen. I don't look at myself as poor me. I don't look at myself as, oh, look what happened to me. Give me your attention. Give me your empathy. Give me this or that. No, hell no. I am just, this is just me. This is just who I am. You know, I mean, I behave this way because of, because of some of the, some of my actions. Absolutely. I mean, I have a hair trigger and I have a, uh, I don't have a bad temper. I wouldn't say that. But if I feel that someone's doing someone else a, a severe injustice, then I'm all over it. You know, I don't have to know you, that sort of thing. So that, that, that level of anger and fury is, is subcutaneous. It's right under the, the surface all the time. And I use it I use it to keep my body strong at the gym I use it to keep my mind clear I use it to get motivated to get things done because when I,
2: in writing yeah things.
4: absolutely I mean this once I once I figured out what I wanted to do with this book here with the memoir um, it just came out it just came flying out so I got about five handwritten pages a day it was good I was satisfied with that and I would do it first thing in the morning because before the hornet's nest opens up in my head the morning is my best time I get up around seven thirty usually later lately because of work but and my head is clear and I have coffee. I can feel my strength and my hope rise and I feel, you know, really good. And then all of a sudden the, the you know, life kicks in and it's a hornet's nest. So I run to the gym and try to bang that out. That's right. sort of thing.
2: Well, I no wonder why you have such a famous person who wrote your foreword. I know, right? <laughs> well,
4: lucky am yeah. I. I'm, I'm, I feel, you know, I don't know how, I think Alan and I ran into each other on social media. And, uh, uh, yeah, I'm just grateful. You know, he's turned into a good friend. He's turning into a really good friend. And, uh, and I'm grateful. You know, you help me put this thing together. I I have issues with technology in that I'm just horrible with it. I don't have the patience. I redline if something doesn't go right the first time and I want to pick up my laptop and just chuck it. So yeah. 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 But he's, you know, he's sort of, he's been, he's been great throughout the whole process. I'm really grateful. I mean, where I am now chatting with you guys on, you know, House of Mystery. This is, this is fantastic. So.
3: Well, it does as much for me as it does. I always find helping people and working with people. It's not even that. It just—I uh, get as much out of it as, as you do. So, mm. so what is your memory uh, now of um, of of your parents? And I, I don't want to keep stowing on this, but do you—is there a certain memory that you have, let's say, of your mother and you particularly that never goes away?
4: Ah, uh, there are several, you know, and and they're not. And there's one—the the last image I have of her alive was she was in the station wagon. We had the station wagon. Just imagine the Brady Bunch, but everybody's on meth. Everybody's on meth. It's bad. And, uh, and, uh, but she was there, she had an orange jumpsuit on, and she looked sober, and she had a kerchief on her head, as she always did. She was sitting in the passenger side, and I was taken off to go to the movies with my brother Jim, and they were going to go do something. Uh, but it, that was the last image I have of her alive. Uh, but the other images are of her just being so beaten down by alcohol and, and some sort of mental anguish that she was going with. And, and she tried to kill herself uh, once that I, that I was there for, um, she tried to cut her wrist, and she was drinking, and I the cops were at our house all the time, just all the time. It was ridiculous um, we were on a first name basis with the neighborhood cops, and they never took us out. This was the 70s they never they took me out, and they took my siblings out once. you know I got taken to foster care for a while um, best summer of my life. Um, but the memories I have of her are, are are just of being in pain or putting vodka into her coffee first thing in the morning so we could find some clothes to to dash off to school with. Um, but yeah, there was just always in the throes of addiction, you know, and some sort of mental anguish that I can assume came from addiction. So the images I have aren't exactly all that happy, but they, just matter of fact, that's that's what it was. You know, we did have some moments of levity. We had some fun times there, you know, but it was always sort of just, okay, when the moods changed, it was time to, it was just time to go. It was time to leave the area for me. It was time to run, basically, so, because you didn't know what was coming. We didn't know what was coming. So the unpredictability, that's where a lot of the anger came from. You know, just the violence and the beatings and not being able to do anything about it, you know. The, the, mostly them fighting each other all the time was, because things would smash and, you know, and, and then someone would reach for a rifle. They had a ton of rifles. The cops never took the rifles. The closet full of rifles. I'm like, is somebody <laughs> going to take these things? Like it's, it's just a matter of time. And they never did, man. It was like an episode of Barney Miller or Fish, that TV show Fish from the 70s or 80s. The cops just showed up. They had a coffee. They're like, ah, oh. we'll just leave. That was it. They'd break up the fight and leave, so. But, yeah, the mm-hmm. images I have are mostly of that, unfortunately. But there's, you know, there's one decent image. But to, yeah, at the end of it all, where I stand right now, is, is it, it just doesn't matter. I mean, I don't think it did when at the funeral. I was like, let's just get this over with. I mean, I didn't hate her. I don't hate her now. But it's just one of those things. It's some sort of self-defense mechanism, I guess. Mm-hmm. And your siblings, uh, uh,
3: the, so they're mm-hmm. – it's a- how are they all ended up now? How are they doing now?
4: Uh, well, the old, my sister Debbie uh, passed away from cancer right after Brian did. She didn't tell me because I was dealing with Brian. She didn't tell me she was sick. Um, so that was a bit of a loss. She was living in Clemson, South Carolina with her daughter. They lived in Florida for a long time, and then her daughter moved up there and got married, and so she lived in an in-law apartment. But she didn't tell me. We were close. My two older sisters, Patty's the oldest, Debbie's the second um, oldest. And I lived with her for a little while. I showed up at her doorstep. It wasn't working out with Patty. We lived in California. So she's like, you got to go. She had gotten married and uh, it just wasn't working out. I wasn't happy there. And uh, so I went to live with my sister, Debbie, but I'm not so convinced that she knew I was coming. I don't know. Patty says she told her, but Debbie seemed surprised when I showed up. I knocked on her door. She's like, who is it? I said, it's Eddie. She said, Eddie who? I said, your little brother. I had a suitcase. I think I was 14. I think I was 14, maybe just about 14. Yeah, I didn't have anywhere to go. But, um, so yeah, she, she, uh, she passed away right after Brian didn't. And, and, uh, I got a little bit of notice. I got to speak with her. She was in pain for a long time. So, but she died young. Yeah. My sister remarried. She lives in upstate New York. She lives in Albany somewhere or Albany, New York. Yeah. She moved from California, which was a big deal. Her kids are there. Uh, Debbie is gone. My, uh, the next in line is Tommy, Butchie, they call him. And then Jimmy and Michelle, and they're all, and then Johnny, my younger. Those are the other four. They live on the East Coast between Vermont and Massachusetts. Addiction has, I saw a picture of my sister Michelle, and she was my favorite as a kid. She had such a hopeful, innocent smile about her all the time, and it was just ruined, you know. Um, and I saw a picture of her, and it just broke my heart, man. It broke my heart because I think the three of them struggle with addiction. I know I know Jimmy did, and Michelle did. Uh, Butchie, I think, is doing a lot better. He's got kids. He seems to be doing all right. Thank goodness. Um, but yeah, I saw the picture of my sister Michelle, and I didn't recognize her. But I, I recognized the the pock marks from from certain drugs, and it was just it was just heartbreaking. But that that image I saw that not too long ago. That image brought everything back, and I was furious and I bristled, you know, because she she was uh, she was like Brian in a way. She looked at life, you know, with open eyes. She looked at everyone as as a quality human being. That, that character that took me aback when I first met Brian. I'm like, this guy's not for real. There's no way and i was i was convinced that good people after my time with him i was convinced that good people in the world actually do exist so michelle is unfortunately I don't, I don't i don't know how she's doing you know that's another thing too i mean i you know being gay my brothers were so anti-gay at times i don't know how they are now with it because we just don't talk but you know i was like i'm not gonna have them in my life i'm not gonna come out to them because so they were they were still struggling with crime and so forth so um, I didn't want that in my life, and I was with Brian at innocent. And I said, an innocent human being. I had my Brian in my life. and I said, there's no way in hell I'm bringing him around my family, except for Patty and Debbie was gone. So I said, there's no way in hell I'm doing that to him, experiencing, you know, letting him see that side of it. So the the other four siblings, I don't know. It's an up and down situation. I don't speak with them. You know, it's mm-hmm. not like I'm, I haven't blocked them out of my life, but it's just always been that way. You know, it's always been that way since since my mother died, I guess, or or, or well before that. So.
3: How are they going to respond when they see the book and you start promoting and you're getting out there? What do you think they're going to say or do?
4: I don't know. It's a good question. You know, my sister-in-law, Butchie's wife, uh, she reached out to me. She said, uh, can't wait to read it, that sort of thing. But, like, my sister Patty's kids didn't know how bad it was when, we, when I first went to live with her. They didn't know that because she had two more kids, right? And so life was a lot better. She, she got remarried and moved out to California. And so her two younger kids know a completely different life than what it was when, when she was with, you know, taking care of me. You know, there was no violence. There was no physical violence for them to witness. There was no, you know, unsurety. There was no, we were in a, in a shelter. We, we escaped Massachusetts because her husband at the time was a violent lunatic, Larry. Um, so the scenery had changed to a white neighborhood, but the interior did not because he was a violent alcoholic. I'm like, here we go again. Doing time on Maple Drive. Uh, so we escaped down to a shelter in Jersey. It's in the book um, for a while to, to, to get away from him. Um, so there was always that insecurity, that fear, that doubt, like, what's coming next. To me, it was as natural as putting my shoes on more. I'm like, bring it. What do you got? You know? Um, so they don't know that part of it. So they'll see it. But in terms of my siblings reading it, I don't know. Who knows? I'm half expecting them to sue me. But, you know, I doubt they have the money for an attorney. I don't know what their lives are right now. You know? But, you know, for a while in my early teens, I was like, why can't? I got three brothers. I can't have them in my life. You know? It's crazy. So I, I, I really... You know if they like it great if they don 't great it doesn 't matter this is this is my story you know this is this is my experience throughout all of that so I mean, I hope they dig it, but at the same time it 's not really on my radar hmm. well,
3: boy, quite the life, quite the memoir, boy yeah. interesting now now everyone you can find this book anywhere now uh, kind soul classic maniac a memoir and it 's by edward cleves of course and and if you really want to get in touch with Ed. Uh, you'll find him on tiktok
4: <laughs> for a little while yeah that's quite the show on there boy yeah, I'm, a sh- I'm a shameless slut and i like it <laughs> I, uh, I, oh, I, get, I um i get the uh, evening sky is going to build a website for me that should be done in a couple of days so it'd be Edwardcleaves.com. you can find out where to purchase it and what's going on that sort of thing so that should that should be up and running in a few days but yeah tiktok absolutely or, or uh, instagram
3: yeah, you see all sorts of wild things on that place.
4: <laughs> I, I have no shame. I don't care. It's all good. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't
3: know. Yeah, between you and Michael, I don't know
4: who's worse. I know right? Well, I don't know. Michael's got a wife that knows judo, so well. Yeah, but you know, she doesn't know about his Instagram. <laughs> I don't. Oh, Jesus! Oh, <laughs> asslesschaps.org Yeah, <laughs> you've been there. Is that okay. you? I subscribe. God <laughs> yeah.
3: well okay well Edward it's, uh, we'll have everything linked up on the website people listening can do one click and find you, find your book and uh,
4: thank you Alan
3: that's, that's that's all we can say thanks it's for nice. being on the show Edward
4: yeah Mr. Holly. thank you for chiming in also and thank you to the house of mystery I really appreciate you
0: tired of wasting time trying to decide what to watch on your streaming service go to our website and look for the Martino movie reviews